thing about like film geeks is um, they have an intense love for film. Incredible love for film, incredible passion. They devote a lot of time, they devote a lot of money, and they devote a lot of their life to the following of film. But they don't really have that much to show for all this devotion, other than a movie poster collection or a still collection. All right. The one thing that they do have to definitely show for it is they have their opinion. All right. They have a highly developed opinion. But what you find out fairly quickly in Hollywood is this is a community where hardly anybody trusts their own opinion. Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 144. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are most worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank Tarantino. I am here with a man that you see very frequently at the top of the movie podcast charts all around the world, at least according to Apple, Spotify, and anywhere that matters. I'm talking about B. Dizzle from We Watched a Thing. He's making his triumphant return. Last time we talked about Stephen King. Now we're talking about Tarantino. You are now the go-to auteur <laughs> guest, I guess, for Binge Movies. How do you feel about that? I, I'm pretty excited. I feel thrilled with the... Uh... The countdowns that I've gotten to come to here that have been... No, no, hang, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. They're not, for legal purposes, <laughs> countdowns. That, that's true, that's true. They're, they're definitive <laughs> rankings. Registered yeah. trademark, Buena Vista, California. I consider myself very lucky with the ones that I've gotten to do here, like King Tarantino. I have to, I actually have a bone to pick with you though, okay. because I recently listened to an episode where you absolutely slagged off bulletproof in your Adam Sandler. Oh bench. yeah. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a favorite of mine as a kid, man. Have you watched <laughs> it in the last two months? Look, not in the last two months, no. It, it's, been, it's been a while, but I mean, geez, I used to love that movie. <laughs> Maybe keep it in the past. Leave the memories alone, <laughs> yeah. B-Diz. Leave the memories alone. But I'm excited to be here. When you reached out and said Tarantino, I was like, yes, because famously I have some gaping, glaring holes in my Tarantino viewing. And this was an awesome excuse to tick those off and finally actually watch them. So thank you for having me. It's And thank you for the, the first-class flights here to sunny Akron. That's awesome. Anytime I can give somebody a first-class flight to sunny tropical Akron, Ohio, <laughs> get you out of the dreary muck that is Australia, whatever, yeah. wherever you're from, <laughs> uh, and bring you to a real tropical location like this, I try to. And anytime I can fill anybody's gaping holes, I try to do that as well. <laughs> Well, thank you. My holes were there. They were gaping and, and you plugged them right up. That's what we do at Binge Movies. We plug your gapes. Well, I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time. We're going to be uh, here for probably eight and a half hours. So we might as well get started. <laughs> That's only half the runtime of the Hateful Eight, eight and a half hours. So which we are not covering this episode for that very reason. Uh, let's start, of course, with his feature film debut as a director. Of course, we're talking about Reservoir Dogs. you feel about pulling a job with about five other guys busted in and busted out of a diamond wholesalers daylight during business hours dealing with the crowd hey your name 
Mr. White. If you want to know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers. The little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. Mr. Blunt. I don't really give a good foot, you know or don't know. But I'm going to torture you anyway. Mr. Orange. You're not going to get hurt. You're super cool. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Let's go to work. Hey, Dobbs, we got a major situation here. I don't think we got set up. I know we got set up. I mean, really, seriously, where did all those cops come from, huh? I don't know if anybody's got the loot. I don't know who's dead. I don't know who's alive. I don't know who's caught. I don't know who's not. We're in the place. Everything's going fine. I turn around and all these cops are outside. Damn, I think my eyes are there. I'm telling you, the cops had that store staked out. You think I did it? You think I set you up? I don't know. For all I know, you're the rat. Oh, I know you're the rat. Nobody's got a clue what happened to Mr. Blue? Either he's alive or he's dead. Or the cops got him. Or they don't. This man set us up. You don't need proof when you have instinct. You wanna shoot me, you little piece of shit? You lost your mind. Don't make me do this. All of these movies were directed and written by QT, Quentin Tarantino. So uh, other than one that has uh, based on, uh, just put that in your binge movies notebook. All of Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> movies, in case you didn't know, movie fan, were written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And the Oscar goes to Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery for Father's this is the triumphant return of Tim Roth, last seen in The Incredible Hulk, probably last seen by you on She-Hulk, of all things. It's a triumphant return of Steve Buscemi, last seen in Army Armageddon, and on a sponsored episode, we talked about him in Billy Madison, famously. The same episode where I slag Bulletproof. <laughs> this film was released January 21st, 1992 at Sundance, and October 9th, 1992, wide across the United States. On a budget of between $1.2 and $3 million, it made $3 million. All hell breaks loose on eight mouthy criminals, leaving the survivors to sort out what went wrong while trying to survive. Tarantino shoots his load very early in his career with one of the best heist films ever made. I got the 4K of this recently, and yep. I think the 4K of this movie is stunning. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't, um, no. no. I just I recently got it uh, ostensibly for this. Yeah, uh, it was the one of the top, you know, rated reviewed uh, 4Ks of 2022. So it's a relatively new release, and it, it really is stunning. It's really incredible the amount of detail and and uh, the clarity that you can see. Besides that, that ended up putting me down this rabbit hole of okay, Reservoir Dogs, and I've seen this. I've seen this, you know, multiple times. I, I, yeah. I, uh, this is one of those movies that my dad showed me, uh, on video when it came out. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I saw it, uh, at a real early age. Uh, you know, yeah. I wasn't in diapers, but I wasn't too far along from diapers. Yeah. And so I do, I, you know, I remember this movie very vividly because of the structure of it. There's not a lot to it. It's a very stripped yeah. down film because it's a low budget indie film. That's partially responsible for it's sort of I the, I would liken it to the the it is the um the bang of the big bang of the indie boom in American cinema of the nineteen oh hundred percent yes yeah with with a follow up with uh, probably Clerks and and you know from there on right so yeah you know, Richard Linklaters yeah. and whoever would come along after that but uh so I went down this rabbit hole for the first time in my life with Reservoir Dogs 
and actually watched some of the movies that influenced Reservoir Dogs, including 1956's Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which is a non-linear heist movie. I recommended that on, t- on Twitter, at Binge Movies. Have you ever yeah. seen The Killing? I haven't. No, I haven't even heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, if you told people, hey, Stanley Kubrick did a neo, it's not even really a neo-noir, but it's a post-noir noir heist movie. You, you just don't you don't think of that when you think of his oeuvre, but he yeah. did. It's a studio picture, but it's he brings what only Kubrick can bring to it. And it's pretty good if you like those those movies. And it feels kind of like all of his movies. They feel like mostly timeless, except for Fear and Desire, which is no good. Yeah. That's, his, that's his first film. <laughs> By juxtaposition with Tarantino's first film, Tarantino came out of more formed uh, director, but the other film is a, a film um, called City on Fire, which came out in 87. Uh, it's got Chow Yun-Fat in it. Have you ever seen City on Fire? Again, I haven't. I'm showing so many gapes today. <laughs> <laughs> I had never seen City on Fire either. I'm going to be honest with you. It might be easier in your neck of the woods because you're closer to the origin yeah. of the movie than, than we are. It's damn near impossible to find, even like in some less than scrupulous places like in the United States, you're going to need a VPN to find it. You know, like it's not, it's not streaming anywhere. It's not readily available on DVD old VHS. Like you just cannot find it. And the plot structures, it's a, it's, it's, it's a Hong Kong boiler, you know, thriller kind of an action movie. So it's a little bit more straightforward, but if you took the Pel, the taking of Pelham one, two, three, the 74 version, you took Stanley Kubrick's The Killing and you took City on Fire and you put them in a blender, you get Reservoir Dogs because you yeah. get the nonlinear storytelling of The Killing. You get the direct code names from the taking of Pelham, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. This, whatever. That's straight out of 74's taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah. And then the cop who uh, is involved in a heist, but he's undercover, but we don't know who the undercover is. I would say City on Fire has more to do with like Infernal Affairs, which was remade by Scorsese as uh, what? What's oh God? The Departed. The Departed. It's more yep. akin to that. It's more straightforward like that. But the ending of City of Fire is the pretty much the exact ending <laughs> of this movie, like almost yep. verbatim. And and he was accused. I bring all this up to say, even in 1992, Tarantino was accused of essentially stealing that move from that movie and he yeah. said well it's not stealing i consider homage which is what he has said all throughout his career when you think of tarantino as a movie guy do you think of him as a thief or as an homage artist i, I was gonna say this is, you've brought up exactly one of the things that i actually really like about tarantino and i mm. think i think just about anyone who's into film at all like you know you and i host film podcasts there's no question how much we love film like the thing that I love about Tarantino is that let's be realistic here. He's almost like 40% filmmaker, 60% film fan. And like even his greatest strengths as a filmmaker come from how much he fucking just unabashedly loves film. And he's always been very, very upfront about that and upfront about what he's taking from even like some of the films that we'll talk about later, the, the titles of the films. Yes. Are right. taken directly from films that inspired him, and they're not remakes in any way. But he's just very upfrontly saying, "This is heavily inspired by this." 
So yeah, I definitely think of him as an homage guy for sure. Yeah. Yes, he's a, like you said, sixty percent film fan. I would even go as far as to say he's like sixty percent film savant. Yeah, the oh, amount yeah. that he just yeah. could rattle off, in particular, oh, a very niche, obscure yeah. B movie exploitation movie, Italian. <laughs> I film. remember seeing him on a on a uh, late night talk show once. I can't remember exactly what the game was. Whether they were. I can't remember if they showed him like VHS covers with the titles taken off or whether no, they, they I think that, I, I know what you're talking about. I think they read the back of the VHS description. Yes, without any that, of the, that, that was it. Yeah, and without the pertinent like... information, he, <laughs> and he got the, the, only, the only one he got wrong is because he just he used a different title than yes. the one that was released on that VHS, but <laughs> yes. it was the same movie. He was that's like, oh, right. well, that's that. Yeah. And they're like, well, no, it's not. And he goes, no, actually, it is. And they yeah. released it under a different title. The original title was blank. <laughs> and I said the original title. Yeah, he is a, like, yeah. He's a, like a movie savant of B-movie, yeah. exploitation movie, Grindhouse, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the midnight movies, whatever, whatever. And in a way, as a film fan, it's almost as if, and we're, we're going to get there, but it's almost as if when he did the later movies, it's almost as if he borrowed the titles, knowing that his movies were going to have a much bigger spotlight put on them. They're going to be yeah. big commercial movies. And then people are going to be yeah. like, oh, well, this is named after something else. Let me go check that. It's almost like he did it because he knew people would then go find the other movies if he used their title. Yeah, that's true. And like I was saying, that is one of the things that I have. I know that I, I always had some holes in my Tarantino filmography. And a yeah. lot of that is it is his more recent films. And it is because their length got kind of unwieldy and i've got kids <laughs> and it just kind of became hard to find yeah. the time to watch them and i always wanted to get so then i came them. along and said watch five of them in a row. <laughs> well you know what you asked me to do something jason and i'm gonna do it i'm gonna oh, make the time you. to do it if thank you ask you. so and, it, and it, was, it was good to finally see these but yeah i i've always considered myself a tarantino fan even with those gaps because yeah. much like him i i just love film and cinema and you know, whether you call it stealing or homages, I think, I think he always does have his own little original twist. Like you might say that the story is taken exactly from this or exactly from that. Like yeah. what he did here with Reservoir Dogs really was invent talky cinema. <laughs> like this yeah. is this was one of the first really really big indie films that was like very dialogue heavy. Yep. And it was like, you know, yes, there is this kind of action-based plot, but we're really coming in after the action here. And this whole film is based on the dialogue. And that is what Tarantino became known for was, you know, his kind of witty, uh, over-stylized dialogue. And then obviously later the over-stylized violence. But yeah. he's just kind of having fun with putting stuff on the page and then later on on camera, I think. Yeah, I think if you're talking about like talky indie cinema, it would basically be 1981's My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, yeah, true. Yes. But there's no, obviously no violence there. This is it. Like no. you said, this is an action heist movie where we don't see the action or the heist. We only, we eventually get little pieces of it piecemeal later, but we see the before and we see the after. And when I, I did the review for Pulp Fiction, we did the top grossing movies of the 90s series. So that's why it doesn't appear here. If you want to go check that series out, it's in the archives. Um, one of the things they said about Pulp Fiction, and this is no grand revelation, but it's what, what makes that movie and therefore Reservoir Dogs, because it's uh, akin to it, so interesting. And like, unlike his other films, is that he made a movie about the scenes in movies that are normally not, that are written, but not 
filmed or or are yeah. cut out. Yep. Right? He he did not make a movie like he took all he wrote a script and took all of the things that you would usually sell a movie on, like a, yeah, it's a big true. heist film. And we're gonna figure out they're gonna plan the heist and we're gonna watch how they do it, like an Ocean's Eleven or whatever. And I love that movie. Yep. And then you get a few talking scenes, but everything's gonna be about driving the plot forward. And he was yes. like, Let me write a script. Let me take all the stuff that's usually considered excess, leave yep. that in and cut usually everything that they cut out out. And that's yeah. what you have left. And part of the ingeniousness of that is one, it made him stand out as a director. It made yes. his movie stand out, but also it was way fucking cheaper. It was way cheaper. Oh, 100%. so he's able to do this movie on a million dollar budget. Thanks to Harvey Keitel who helped secure funding. Um, yeah. Because he doesn't really have to make the heist movie. He, he's making the yeah. movie in between before and after the heist movie. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. It's very, it's very clever filmmaking. You're right. Like for a debut film, like there's a reason that a lot of kind of indie directors get their start in horror, for example, yeah. which you, you can do quite effectively on a budget or you, you brought up kind of talky movies, something like, before sunrise or my dinner with Andre where it's just kind of clerks where it's just people sitting around chatting for him to have the balls to go, no, I'm doing an action thriller heist movie as my debut (laughs) and to be able to pull it off so effectively with a budget this small by doing exactly what you said, by kind of showing us those pieces that other films don't and still having it be interesting and engaging. And it's, honestly masterful like uh, this has always been my favorite tarantino and after this really still stands i'm gonna give that away now and this is one of the things i love about tarantino though is that you can you can get a hundred people in a room and odds are that at least 99 of them will consider themselves a tarantino fan but they'll all have a different favorite like and some people will say oh this is his weakest film and that'll be somebody else's favorite like that's that's one of the things I really love about him. <laughs> so what you're saying is we're courting controversy by even doing this episode, doing a film <laughs> podcast I'm retrospective it, yeah. on QT. People are going to blow our shit up. Uh, well, I'm telling you right now that I am going to say some controversial things as we go on. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, it wouldn't be a QT pod without it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. speaking of controversy, let me just start here. Every once in a while, I like to go back and find out what the real critics had to say about movies contemporaneously. After I did my little review, I looked up what Ebert had to say because Ebert was an advocate for QT. Yeah, I love Ebert. He, one of the things I love about Ebert, I'm just talking about what I love about people, but, but he's so funny. For an old, white, crusty white man, he actually loved a lot of really modern filmmaking. <laughs> I hated, hated, hated this movie. That's a statement I made many times while leaving the screening room. And now here are some of the affronts to my taste, my intelligence, and my patience that inspired my revenge and some hate-filled reviews. He has two sentences, and I agree with both of them. The first sentence is, the movie feels like it's going to be terrific. And I have a question for you, which is, have you ever watched a movie that just, like, literally when it turns, you've never seen it before, but just as it turns on, as that title screen comes up, or the first few seconds begin to, to happen, you just feel not based on reputation, not based on what you've been told. It's just this intangible feeling like in the, in the pit of your stomach, like, Oh, this is going to be good. It just feels like it's going to be, you experienced that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even just last year, I definitely had that experience with everything everywhere all at once. Uh, The moment that movie started and I knew nothing about it going in the moment it started, I was like, wow, this is a special film. 
I could just tell almost instantly. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you get that feeling and then you're wrong. Like I got yes. that feeling the first, the first hour of men, for example, I thought was incredible filmmaking. And then by the end, I'm like, look, I still liked it. I liked it a lot more than other people did. Too many back vaginas not- for you. It, <laughs> it reminded you of your, your, your gates. <laughs> I mean, I I actually still liked that film all the way to the end, but by the end, I was like, okay, that movie wasn't as incredible as gotcha. I thought it was going to be. It knocked it down a few minutes. notches. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it does happen from time to time, and I think this is one of those films where, from the first couple of scenes, you're like, wow, this, especially back in '92, yes. this was interesting filmmaking. Well, put a pin in what you just said because here's how he follows it up, and I agree right. with this sentence as well, or at least the completion <laughs> of the sentence. But Tarantino's script doesn't have much curiosity about these guys. He has an idea, and he trusts the idea to drive the plot. And here's what I found. I found in revisiting Reservoir Dogs, which has never been my favorite Tarantino. It's never, it's it's just been a Tarantino to me. Understanding its importance in film history and 90s film history in particular, and obviously in breaking Tarantino big and all this sort of stuff. But what I have always found, and, and found on this viewing as well, even in sparkling 4K, is that the flashback segments are unevenly interesting to me. Right. And the other thing is now, and this is the hard part when you're talking about somebody's debut film. Yeah. Because now we've seen Tarantino use all of the elements that are in this movie, in my opinion, to more significant effect later. Yeah, right. But as you just said, in 1992 we didn't have all of that history. Yeah. And so this movie comes out, it's like a revelation. Like I said, it's the big bang of the nineties indie movie boom. So it's like, do you rate it for its place in history? This is what I'm wrestling with. Even though you think he's done iterations of this, even Pulp Fiction just a few short years later, which is almost a reiteration of Reservoir Dogs in a sense, using nonlinear storytelling, shooting around the action, you know, yeah. uh, he does a little Rashomon thing where he starts telling it from different yeah. angles and different yeah. stories and the, those stories converge and whatnot. But, but do you, where do you, where do you put this now when you're looking at it? Because I think what it suffers from now is two or three viewer related syndromes. Cause if the viewer has seen the sort of movies that inspire Tarantino yeah. and his characters, the homages, they feel a little less innovative on the other yeah, hand. Right if the viewer comes to this movie without that context or without the context of 1992, the movie actually feels less innovative or provocative because you've seen a bunch of people rip Tarantino off. Yeah. So that's a challenge for Reservoir Dogs. I think some of his, I think all for all of Tarantino, honestly, but especially for Reservoir Dogs, if you know where he, his source material, you might not be able to fully embrace how innovative he is. And if you have seen anybody, basically all of David Ayer's entire fucking career and some of Zack Snyder's, and there's more and more and more of these guys. Yeah. Uh, and, and in the 90s, they came and went by the dozen. Everybody yeah. was trying to be Tarantino oh, after 100%. this movie, and especially after Pulp Fiction. When yeah. you've seen those guys come and go, uh, and some of those elements even, you know, I think this is going to be real controversial, and this is, <laughs> but I think Scorsese even takes a little Tarantino uh, when oh. in the films that he makes uh, post-Tarantino. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just, I don't, yeah. Obviously, Scorsese influenced Tarantino, whether he would admit it or not. 
But yeah. it's almost as if Tarantino gives Scorsese permission to go back to 70s Scorsese. Yeah. And by the late 90s, he's like, oh, you know, and then, you know, I, I, I so it's just like QT's a hard fucking guy to categorize, as are his movies, yeah. because his influence on cinema, it literally, cinema's influence on him is outsized, and his influence on cinema is outsized. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. I still. I, I love this movie from start to end, and maybe it's just that I love the musicality of the dialogue so much. I also personally think that Tarantino, for me anyway, is a filmmaker who works better under restraint. I I mentioned uh, earlier the kind of unwieldy lengths yeah. of his later films, and I do think that at times that is to the film's detriment. Like, don't get me wrong, I have nothing against a long film, but I do think there are times where it's kind of outgrown him a little bit. And the project has become larger than I think it either warrants or that he's kind of fully capable of handling. And I think that in his early career where he was working with budget restraints and he was, I, I do think it forced him to think a little bit more creatively about how he did things. And so and I, he had yeah, serial me, sexual was, predator Harvey Weinstein breathing down his neck. And, oh, geez, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how that relationship has never come back to bite him in the ass, I don't Yeah, know. I know. It's it's pretty amazing. He's like the one person who somehow got out of that clean and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, they were too close. That really. whole time, man, I was just waiting like this. This revisit just solidified this movie's place for me, but it, yeah. it did reveal something to me that I hadn't noticed in any other instance, which is I think Chris Penn not only holds his own in this group of heavy hitter actors, I think he's actually one of the better performers, which if you're like, hey, the guy from Footloose, Sean yeah. Penn's little brother, his, well, bloated brother, is, <laughs> you know, one of the better parts. But when he's like, you know, Stop pointing that gun at my dad! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the yeah. whole thing, his whole character, uh, I really like. I really like Chris Penn. I yeah. really like his performance in this movie. And, you know, there are obviously, like, there are certain of those flashbacks that I really enjoy. The Madsen flashback where he goes back to Joe or Lou or whatever the fuck his name is. And, yeah. like, that drags on way too long for me. I completely check out and lose interest. Um, yeah, right. But some of the other flashbacks I really find interesting, you know, the Keitel Roth relationship, although I think Roth American accent is dog shit in this movie. <laughs> um, it's like it's so cartoony. You're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? It's really, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm dying here. I'm dying here. Oh, I'm dying. And, and also like the amount of blood that has come out of this guy. Oh, so much blood. And at, at one so point, at one point, they, like he, the camera's on him, and he's literally, he's literally just like, like doing like, almost like a, a finger paint in his own blood. I don't know if you know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. I think that he just had to sit on the floor in in fucking corn syrup for so long that he yeah. forgot what he was even doing. You know, because he's like <laughs> acting like he's like, oh, I'm gonna die. I'm dying here. Oh, I'm so weak. But then he's like, his he's got these like his hands are like playing in the blood. It's just a weird little thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All that being said, I think this is Tarantino's, especially of this list. I think it's his weakest film. It's my oh, worst of the wow. week. Give it a seven point five out of Whoa. ten. Wow. I, I don't know if I ever, despite owning it on four K, I don't know that I ever need to revisit it. it it's not bad. It's wow. not a bad movie, but I do think it's his weakest. 
Wow, that's fascinating. As I already mentioned, I, this is my favorite Tarantino still, even after the binge. And and I did expect, because I've heard great things about the few that I haven't seen, I I did think maybe it would shift, but it hasn't for me. So this is a 9.2 out of 10. Holy shit. So 9.2 out of 10 versus a 7.5 out of 10. That means disparity. <laughs> presumably you are adding this to the guest list for the end of the season? I sure am. Okay, I am not, uh, obviously. <laughs> So let's make that official. It's been officially added to the guest list. Okay. All right. Moving along to uh, basically the redheaded stepchild of, uh, at least until uh, his grindhouse entry, (laughs) the the original redheaded stepchild, the follow-up to Pulp Fiction. It's 1997's Jackie Brown, which currently has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. A half million in cash is up for grabs, but who's playing who? Here we go. Rolling Stone magazine calls Jackie Brown a knockout. Roger Ebert raves it's one of the year's best movies. I'm impressed. Filled with Oscar-worthy performances, it's the funniest film of the holiday season. Booyah! Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Rated R. Jackie Brown is the only one that wasn't completely written by Tarantino. Wrong, sir. Wrong. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You know, he did write the screenplay for it. He is the sole credited writer. But it is an adaptation of Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch. It is the triumphant return of Michael Keaton, last seen in Spider-Man Homecoming. The triumphant return of Robert De Niro, last seen in Meet the Parents. It's the triumphant return of Samuel L. Jackson, last seen in The Legend of Tarzan. It's a triumphal return of Robert Forrester, not seen since the days of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, baby. This film was released December 25th, 1997. Can you imagine dragging the family to the theater on Christmas <laughs> to see the follow-up to Pulp Fiction? And this is the movie he delivers. On a budget of $12 million, it only made $74.7 million. So still a really big hit, but not the hit that Pulp Fiction was. This was seen as a disappointment. Yeah. Aging stewardess has to pull off the perfect scam to save her life in more ways than one. Tarantino shows us that some of his best work can be an adaptation in this taut crime thriller. Have you ever watched a VHS tape of buff chicks firing machine guns? (laughs) No. (laughs) The way an American video store was laid out, I imagine it was probably the same in Australia, especially a mom and pop an independent video store, was the new releases or the top hit movies typically lined the outer walls so if you walk yes, in the store that's exactly that's what, what we had right. yeah and then the interior aisleways which had the shorter shelves typically had you know uh, uh genres they, you had your, yeah, your comedy your drama yeah that's yeah right that's where the the classic films were the genre yeah. films were and the straight to video movies typically went there or at least eventually migrated there yeah. And then usually in a back corner, you had a beaded curtain or saloon doors of some kind. And that's where all the triple X titles were. That's where all the porno was, hardcore porn. Yeah, see, ours was just out in that middle area. We didn't have any beaded off section. Wait, Australia? You just well, had certainly, hard- the, certainly the video <laughs> store I worked at, yeah. You yeah. just had hardcore porn right on the floor. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you guys live different over there. Uh, <laughs> 
Now, Paul was telling me you weren't allowed to have outdoor dining until 1998 or something like that because Australia is conservative. Maybe just Perth is Austra- conservative. Yeah, I was have- going to say, that doesn't sound right to me. I'm sure we always <laughs> had outdoor dining. So, what, Paul, the, what are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> what we have decided is that Paul lives in the backwoods of Australia. He, he, uh, <laughs> yeah. is that, is, what is, is Perth seen as a more conservative backwoods local yokel area? No, not really. Perth is kind of so isolated, though, that it's virtually seen as its own place. Like every other city in Australia is along the East Coast. Yeah. And Perth is just there on its own, literally like a five day drive away. So <laughs> so what you're telling me is... I mean, it's is... a beautiful place. I've been to Perth and it's 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 a nice place. But geez, no outdoor dining until the late 90s? That can't be right. If Paul, had, as a child, had wanted access to hardcore pornography, he would have had to Lawrence of Arabia at his ass across the center of the continent <laughs> yeah. to get yeah. to your side of the country. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. He would have had to ride camels over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. This, now this makes a lot of, this makes sense. This makes yeah. sense as to why he likes the things that he likes because he was deprived of them as a youth. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Now let's let's not psychoanalyze a guy who's not even on the show unless his name is Tarantino. Let's get back yeah. to it. Uh, but yeah, so in the video store era, uh, going back to this, um, but in, in between there in those middle aisles, you would get uh, sexploitation movies, for lack of a better term. They yeah, right. typically okay. had nudity in them. Uh, a, a police academy parody offshoot straight to video series starring Linnea Quigley and Ginger Lynn, who was a porn actress they would do basically a movie with tons of nudity or at least promise tons of nudity. And they did a series of films called vice Academy or you'd get like ski school Two, babes on the run or something. (laughs) something And these were usually low grade, very cheaply made comedies, but they promised a lot of boobs. (laughs) Also had towards the late nineties in those same similar sections, things like this. We're all about asses now, but in the nineties, we love big. And yeah. it was a bunch of blondes with big fake tits, tits firing machine guns. That's a real yeah, right. thing. I don't think the movie they show here is a real. I think he went off and shot this himself as, <laughs> yeah. as a parody of what was. But my point in bringing all this up is if you are somebody who's watching this now, you're like, what the fuck are these guys watching? That was a thing. <laughs> it was a real thing. If you were too embarrassed to go to the dirty video corner or the dirty bookstore which was a separate place to get pornography because the internet wasn't around kids you had to go out and touch this stuff with your two bare hands god knows what was on those vhs covers right imagine going to a imagine going to a lending library of jerk off material that was the video store there's a lot of people who just couldn't bring themselves to do it Lest their pastor see them come out of the the saloon doors, or <laughs> right the, the the leader of the 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 Girl Scout troop or something for your daughter's yep. Girl Scout trip. <laughs> but a lot of people would slip slip in, you know, Vice Academy two or slip in <laughs> chicks with guns into a stack of VHS and check out quietly. So it's like a whole yeah. market that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Softcore fetishism in broad daylight. Now we have the yeah. internet. You can be as deep, dark, and perverse oh. as you want to be. The internet has killed everything. <laughs> <laughs> the internet has killed our ability to access pornography publicly, is what you're saying. Yeah, and that's a sad <laughs> thing. 
but like I was just watching this, just like this guy, even though it's Samuel L. Jackson, right? It's Nick Fury at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's Formula Four Fifty Seven or whatever that dog shit movie was, where he had bagpipes and made a, made drugs. It's Samuel L. Jackson. He's ubiquitous. We know we, he's just in every fifth movie that comes out. Yeah, he's the motherfucker guy. <laughs> yeah, I do not see Sam Jackson. Absolutely not. No, I see. I see Ordell. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm going to say one of my first controversial things here. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I I love Pulp Fiction, as does everyone. I think that this is Sam Jackson's best role and best performance in a Tarantino film. I think I that Ordell is. Yep. I, I love I love this movie and I, I actually love the book it's based on too, Rum Punch by Elmer Len- eh, Elmore Leonard, which I think is a great book. But what Tarantino's done here, this is one of those few cases where the adaptation is better. Wow. And Ordell is an incredible villain. He is great. He is a villain. He is hateable. You don't like him, yet you understand his charisma, yet he's corny. Yeah. He's a he's the, he, like He's he's fucking corny. He's got bad bad hair. Got a bad hairdo. Oh, bad that hair. hair I know it's awful. <laughs> when when Pam Greer calls him like you corny crusty motherfucker, like he is corny and crusty, but he's also yeah. kind of cool and he's also slick, but he's also scary. But he's also like a fucking idiot. He's he's like yeah. He's like, in that way. He's like a real person. He's not a movie yes. villain. Yes, he's, that's he, right. Yeah, he's multi-dimensional. Right. He's an idiot, yes. and in some ways, a villain who's an idiot is much scarier. Yes. Than a villain who's smart because with an idiot you never know what they're going to do. He, he he he's not smart enough to actually think things out properly and he reacts very emotionally and that is terrifying. That's that is scary. the pull quote for this yeah. episode. With an idiot you never know what they're going to do. You, you never know. It's, <laughs> it's it's terrifying. It's true. Honestly, You're he's right. So good. Yeah. 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 This is for film fans. This is one of two. Put this in your binge movies notebook. Now made available officially at bingemovies.threadless.com. You also find our t-shirts there. Cheap plug. This is one of two Robert Forrester flicks where he acknowledges his hairline is fucked up. The other being 1981's (laughs) Alligator. I don't know. Again, being Tarantino, does he want Forrester because he was an alligator? (laughs) Which, by the way, Alligator is just genuinely a really good movie. Um, And I think Robert Forrester is fucking incredible he's another one of these max cherry is this completely multi-dimensional character yes yeah like you you get his character immediately like he's no nonsense he knows what he's doing he's an expert he's a bail bondsman it's kind of a like a shitty job it's kind of a bullshit job it's like on the fringes of legality but kind of quasi part of the legal system at least in america and You know, he's he's an aging guy now. He's in his 40s or early 50s. He, You know, his life didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to. And he's kind of asleep. He's kind of asleep in his life. But he's yeah. still very quick. He immediately gets Ordell's number. And just like, you know, you're telling me this because you want me to ask this. And you want me to do this because you want me to think this. And he's like, and he doesn't have time for bullshit. Yeah. And then seeing Pam Greer awaken something in him, which I can fully acknowledge if i saw pam greer it would awaken something in me oh my god but anyway uh he's just incredible in this in this movie the only i think all of the casting is great the only piece of casting i've never been sure about because i'm not sure about the actress is bridget fonda because i'm not sure whether bridget fonda is gorgeous or ugly talented or a nepo baby because obviously she's a fonda i I just 
I don't know. I like when you look at her, you're like, I kind of get the sex appeal, but I also kind of don't. But it's uh, also single that, white female, but like, but like, uh, I just like I, yeah. Two so years later, Heather actually, Graham is playing this character, right? Like, this is this I, Heather Graham is playing as a boogie night almost. I don't know, man. I think that Bridget Fonda actually really works in this role because everything you kind of described—that's Melanie, kind of, you know, like that's she's a good point. Like, you know, she yeah, is sexy, yeah. but she's she's gangster sexy. She's sexy in the way that you know, but kind like, of beat up. Her so face exactly. Is a beat. Yeah, she's all used. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, like she's kind. Of, she's got all of that stuff. But she's the sort of chick Ordell would be able to. Exactly. Yes. And it's like, is she a good person? Is she not a good person? Like there's so many questions around Melanie that I actually think everything you described there, Bridget Fonda actually does really well. I think she's great. And don't get me started on De Niro too. I think this is one of De Niro's best roles post 1990 as well. Who's also an idiot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh man. Yes. This is a complete burned out idiot, man. The way when just the subtlety of when he doesn't can't, he's fumbling to be able to hang up the fucking phone. Yeah, yeah. Where he's just like, it's so subtle, but it's funny. I could make the argument, like, there are movies where he he almost, Tarantino almost goes Raimi a little bit later, where violence begins to punctuate humor and so forth and so on. Definitely, yes, yep, yeah. This movie, though, is probably his driest movie in terms of both violence and humor. I think that's what turned people off, especially coming off of Pulp Fiction. I also feel like he had something to prove, which is, I'm not just a one-note guy. Who just has a lot of profanity, even though this does have a lot of profanity. Uh, I'm not just blood guts and and what pop culture references. So he does this other thing over here, which which is Jackie Brown, which feels not akin to Pulp Fiction whatsoever. I think if you were going in wanting more Pulp Fiction, and instead you're just getting long shots of Bridget Fonda's feet, you're like, what the (laughs) fuck, right? Like, why do I keep going back to this girl's apartment where she only wears yeah. one bikini ever and just does something but yes, smoke fucking true. weed? Yeah. I actually think it's such a shame that this movie was poorly received. Yes, me too. Yeah. As I said, I, I think that for me, this shows that I think Tarantino might be better at adapting than just about anybody. Um, but he doesn't I, do it though. That's the thing. No, this is really the only it. one, yeah. and, and I wonder if part of that is because this was this. Like, let's be clear, this wasn't a failure. Like, right. it was still well received and stuff. But I think, like you said, it's the it was the redheaded stepchild for years and years. This was yep. not like when people talk about Tarantino, it's easy for them to almost skip over this entirely. And I think that's such a shame because I would love to see a world where he does more stuff like this that's kind of varied rather than settling right into his niche, which is that kind of ultra violence, um, you know, the kind of fun and humor relating to the violence. And it, now he's gotten right into that kind of revisionist history thing as well. I yeah. would have loved to have seen him keep playing with stuff like this and see kind of where that would have led. I don't know that his ego will let him because that's the other thing about uh, QT yeah. is a lot of auteurs, he, uh, his ego is quite sizable. He believes that he's right yeah. about everything. Um, yeah. Ad nauseum. And so I think that, yeah, I think that he, he doesn't be, like, I, I, I'm not sure why he did an adaptation here. Obviously he got to start yeah. off not, you know, as a director, but as like a part, a bit actor. And then he also did script rewrites. And then he also ended up writing the story that, or the, one of the scripts that got turned into natural born killers but um, which he's disavowed the actual movie, but, um, but he was like a script doctor for a while in Hollywood, but it's like, yeah. once he broke big, like he does this, but he doesn't really, you're right. It's almost like, I think it's vanity that just won't allow him to go back to adapting. I think he just wants yeah. to, rather than 
adapt worlds. He wants to create his own worlds. And we'll get into yeah. whether or not we think that's successful a little bit later. I think what makes this movie so unique in all of his filmography, and this is going to probably piss some people off, but I think oftentimes his movies are best the very first time you see them. Yep. Because they're so visceral. And anything that's visceral, anything that plays with timelines and nonlinear storytelling or whatever, it feels much fresher the first time you watch it. Yeah, true. Yeah. This film, even though it has some of those non nonlinear elements, because even he defines it as a hangout movie, because it's like a hangout movie, and it's I don't want to say it's just a vibe, because it's actually probably one of the more heavily plotted of his movies, probably because it's coming off of the the mystery novel, uh, the you know, rum punch. And so he's got yeah. to put those plot beats in, and it's all about scams and who's scamming who and who knows what when and all that sort of stuff. I think though this movie is unique because I think this movie actually gets better every time that you watch it. Yeah. I think this is a movie yeah. that needed time to breathe culturally. It needed to get away from Pulp Fiction. It needed, we needed to evolve a little bit as a, as a film culture. And then I think it's, it's had this reappraisal in recent years because people have watched it two, three, four times over the years going back to it and then realized, oh no, this is actually a masterfully made film. Yeah. With yeah. masterful performances. Centerpiece of it is Pam Greer as Jackie Brown herself. Because yeah. Jackie is a morally dubious character. Like she's not yes. a good person, but she's also sympathetic. But and it would have been so easy, especially with where we know his work goes, it would have been so easy for him to just give in to his homage instincts with this one. And here's why. Because he with Jackie Brown, even though the name is an allusion to Foxy Brown, when you get Pam, Pam Greer, and he's got such a fascination with seventies black exploitation films, yeah, he yeah. could have just tried to make a black exploitation film, yeah, and, a black, and a, where you know the movie we see Pam Greer, Jackie Brown's character in this case gets brutalized, and she has to take nasty, violent vengeance against yeah. her brutalizers while outsmarting the people who put her in that position, and you know, and all this sort of stuff. That's not what this movie is. If you go into Jackie Brown thinking you're getting Foxy Brown redone, yeah. where she's going to cut a pimp's dick off and give it to the <laughs> pimpress or whatever in a jar, yeah. that doesn't happen. There, there's literally hardly any violence in this movie until the end. Yeah, yeah. But that's why it's I all, think It's movie... all about Pam Greer's character outsmarting people. Yeah. And again, and it's talky, not actioning. That, that's where I think the fact that it's an adaptation makes it work better than I think a lot of his later movies has because it allowed him to take that existing source material, which already had a great plot, good characters and stuff, mm. but put his spin and his homages on top of that, you know, like to mm. kind of marry these two worlds together. And, yeah, this isn't a black exploitation film, but the filmmaking itself still has a lot of that vibe to it. Like yeah. you watch this movie and it kind of it feels like a like a seventies movie. The music, obviously, which we haven't even spoken about Tarantino's music yet, but yeah. it's the same as Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. He has a great ear for music, and Jackie Brown, I think, is a great soundtrack again. Like it all marries together with that source material and his sensibilities and kind of love of old cinema to just make this incredible thing. Now you talk about music. The music when Max is coming out of the mall movie theater is the end credits are playing in the movie. He's just walked out of that is the yeah. music we hear over the end credits of this movie. Yeah. Does that right. mean <laughs> that he was that watching Max is watching movie. his own movie? Yeah. 
now that that oh that wrinkles my brain. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's something to think about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, as I watched it this time, it's upset people are thinking I'm off my rocker, but if if Max isn't watching his own movie, I think Jordan Peele watched this movie because I think Jordan Peele took something of the spiritual DNA of Jackie Brown and he made a movie called Nope out of it. Yeah, right. Okay. Nope. How do you and see that? Jackie Brown, <laughs> not plot-wise, vibe-wise, yeah. where it's just, it's a hangout movie where these characters are trying to accomplish something, but everything is subdued. Yeah. Everything is subdued. I'm not talking about theme. I'm not talking about plot. I'm talking about tone. Yeah. If you compare Get Out and Us and Reservoir Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, Nope is Peel's Jackie Brown. Yeah. Tonally. Because he's not giving you the thing that you think you want Jordan Peel to give you. He's giving you something else. And it's he's going to take his time to get there, and it's going to move at a very deliberate pace, and it's going to yeah. be very dialogue heavy. And you know, again, it, it, you know, it, it's, I, I, it's very. This is one of Tarantino's, and he's a very idiosyncratic filmmaker. We'll get to like the his most idiosyncratic film, but this is an idiosyncratic film, and there's something about the sensibility between those two movies where I was just like, I think they would make a hell of a double feature. I think if you had eight hours to just sit and watch television, I think if you did Jackie Brown and then Nope, I think it would flow together seamlessly. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I, I know that people think, I, think I'm, off, I'm off my rocker, but <laughs> I, I'm not. My biggest challenge this week, B-Dizzle, was and I put it on Twitter, not as one of those like Twitter prompts. Let me try to get responses for people. I was very <laughs> deliberately weighing the question. Is Jackie Brown a perfect movie? Because I cannot think of a single line of dialogue, a single scene, a single needle drop, a single character beat, anything. And I guess maybe the only fly in the ointment was Bridget Fonda, but you cleared that up for me. <laughs> wow. um, so does that mean that this is your, your best of the week? Ah, it was neck and neck with this and another film. But in the end, I I went with a slightly different film. Film. Oh, okay, yeah. Only with a slightly, (laughs) only because of 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 of, it's like by a shred, by a shred of subjectivity. But I'm still giving this a nine out of ten, and I believe this is the second best Tarantino film ever made. Well, I'm I'm right there with you. This is my second best as well. Um, nine out of ten. Yeah. When I revisited this a few years ago, I I was like, holy shit! <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I, here's the thing: like, I've seen Tarantino's work as a film as a white guy who talks about movies on the internet, but yeah. I'm not. I'm I would not. I'm not a Tarantino film bro, right? I'm not like yeah. I'm not yeah. in the cult of Tarantino. Where like he's the greatest living filmmaker ever, and oh my god. Oh yeah. Right. Same. I don't have a Pulp Fiction poster. I didn't jerk off to uh, uh, Beatrix Weirdo or whatever her name is. Um, yep. You know, I don't think Kill Bill's. It's where there's not in the list. <laughs> I've never, I've never seen Kill Bill. Oh, it's another. Wow. So before you asked me to do this, like I yeah. said, I I respected Tarantino a lot, and what I'd seen, I I had enjoyed. Yeah, but I had only seen 
Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. I, I hadn't seen wow. any of the others apart from those three. Um, so I'm I'm right there with you. Like I I I like him, but yeah, I'm not like film broy. You know, like I, yeah. So. So we're in the same boat. Okay. So we're going to get a lot of shit for this episode is what we're saying. <laughs> Speaking of a lot of shit that we're going to get for this episode, it's time to move on to probably his most popular film in general pop culture, maybe his most accessible, yeah. accessible film. We're talking about 2009's Inglorious Bastards, which currently has an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ten hot! I'm putting together a special team. We're gonna be doing one thing and one thing only. Killing Nazis. I'm gonna assume you know who we are. Everybody in the German army's heard of you. Probably heard we ain't in the prisoner taking business. We in the killing Nazi business. And cousin, <laughs> business is a booming. <laughs> hey Donnie, guy's German here wants to die for country. Oblige him. The Germans are throwing a gala premiere. In attendance will be most of the German high command. It'll rendezvous with our double agent. She'll take it from there. You're getting us in that premiere. That's suicide. What else are we gonna do? Go home? So what's the plan? We punch those goons out to take their machine guns and burst them in their blast. Is that the plan? That's about it. Or not. I won't give you a little something you can't take off. You're getting pretty good at that. You know, in the hands of an assist. My hands, to be exact. Yes, 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 yes. Glorious Bastards. This film is not yet rated. Glorious Bastards is the triumphant return of Michael Fassbender, last seen in X-Men, Dark Phoenix. <laughs> It's a terrific return of Daniel Brühl, an actor and character they ruined in the MCU. Last see when the character was good in Civil War. Uh, it's a triumph return of Brad Pitt, I think, last seen in Seven. Uh, go back and find those episodes in the archives. This film was released May 20th, 2009 at the Cannes Can Film Festival, or Con Film Festival. In the Midwest, we say Can. It was released in Germany. <laughs> Germany of all places first. God bless Germany. August 20th, 2009. And then in the United States, August 21st, 2009. On a budget of $70 million, this film made $321.5 million. A Gestapo survivor and a band of Nazi hunting American Jewish officers converge in Nazi occupied French at the movies. <laughs> Tarantino discovers revisionist history and pens the tale of the men who kill Hitler during World War II. This is one of the ones we alluded to. This title is directly taken with a slight spelling difference from yep. Enzo Castellari and Fred Williamson's Inglorious Bastards. It is the first of his, as you talked about, revisionist history, Revengers. In this case, obviously, it's a revenge of, of Jewish people against the Nazis. And... Here's what I would say. If you haven't seen it in a while, you may just forget how it opens. And it opens with chapter one, once yep. upon a time in Nazi occupied France. So is it any wonder that the capstone of his trilogy would just be called once upon a time in Hollywood of his revisionist history trilogy? 
Yeah. Um, yep. Also, we get this chapter gimmick, which I'll get back to a little bit later. Tarantino, at this point in his career, is working out iterations of something in his mind that he's he's dialed into something of his past, which is it is homage, but it's also like reinterpretation. But it's a reinterpretation of history via reinterpretation of film history and the sort of films that make up his personal history. Yeah. And this almost feels with the movies he's going to make the next one, Django, and then obviously we'll get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It almost feels like he's, it's like he's, his mind is chewing on something. He's got this idea in his head of this sort of movie he wants to make. And he just kind of, he like makes it three times. Yeah. And, and the debate is which of those three iterations is the best one. And I think we'll, we'll probably disagree. (laughs) To me, when this movie came out, I did not like it. Yeah. I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't care for it. It was like, I was like, okay, it's fine. But everybody was raving about it. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of my friends, one of my good friends, one of his favorite movies. And I was, I was, well, this movie's it's not good. It stinks. Yeah. I have come around to it. It took a long time, but I came around to it. And I came around to it because Christoph Waltz, to American eyes at the very least, in this film, seems as if he actually teleported from Nazi Germany. Christoph Waltz is fantastic. He, he was a revelation, right? Yeah. Forget he, whatever he really he's done is. since, even Django or Battle Angel or whatever. But I'm just in this movie, Hans Lodza feels like a real Jew hunter, Gestapo German character. Like they, if, yeah. it seems like they just got this guy from. Uh, 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 Nazi-occupied Germany somewhere, fascist Germany, and just, like, time-traveled him into a movie. It is stunning. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe then what I need is a few more rewatches and a bit more time, because I watched this movie for the first time ever last night. And don't get me wrong, I, this is a, it's a very good movie. It's yeah. a good movie. And my score will reflect that. But much like you, I've heard nothing. You know, Topher, my former co-host, and we watched the thing. This is his favorite Tarantino. That's a sentiment that I think. You know, even just looking at Letterbox last night when I was logging these in, this is almost unanimously seen as his best film. Yeah. And I, I mean, I like it, and there's a lot that I like about it, but there's still a lot that I don't. And maybe I just need more time and more rewatches if that's what what kind of ticked you over because. You know, Christoph Waltz is fantastic. Yep. Brad Pitt is very funny in the film. He's very good. Yep. Um, I mean, the whole cast is great. Melanie Laurent is fantastic in this film and, and for me almost steals the show. Yeah. But this is kind of, when, when I mentioned before that I felt Tarantino kind of got a bit unwieldy, I think this is the start of that. And there's almost three separate movies here and they do come together quite nicely by the end. But... I do think that there are some parts of this film where it's almost like watching like a vignette, like a scene on its own. Yeah. And when you're yeah. watching it, you're like, this is, this is amazing. This is one of the best things yeah. I've ever seen. You know, even for example, the, the opening, like you mentioned at chapter one, that, that is a 25 minute scene that opens this film of basically just Christoph Waltz talking, which well, is great. Don't get me wrong. But so it, in a film of this length, yeah. it, it feels kind of overzealous to me a bit. 
almost like a series of short films strung together. Exactly. Yeah. And they yeah. all work brilliantly on their own, but I'm still not sure, you know, a mere 12 hours after having finished it, I'm not quite sure on how well I think it all worked as a unit, even though I loved all the individual pieces. Yeah. The thing that finally cemented it in my head and getting out of the point where I was like, it's okay to maybe even I don't like it. I thought it was okay, but then it, to me it felt overhyped and then I kind of was a part of a backlash against it. And now I've, I've, I've sort of leveled out a little bit. And it was, it, was, it was these two scenes, these two juxtapositions, and they're both Christoph Waltz. Yep. It's that first 25-minute scene, which is a scene that could have been taken almost pitched slightly different, could have come out of Schindler's List. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. Right? And then there's him at the end when he's trying to make his deal and, you know, oh, that's a bingo. That's a bingo. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Where it's, it, now we're almost into, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark cartoon comic book version of like captain america punches hitler in the face right like like ultra violent pre-code comic book nazi depiction at the end where they yeah. blow a rubber dummy of hitler to shit and then blow a place up and whatever whatever i think the thing is you need in that central antagonistic role a character who can do both who can be real world terrifying sadistically taking joy in a manic fascism like what you get in the first 25 minutes and you yep. need a comic book villain in the last 25 minutes yeah and when you realize that it's waltz who is the through line because your instinct is you kind of want this movie hence the title you kind of want it to be about the inglorious bastards you kind of oh, the smallest subplot <laughs> they're the yeah they are they they disappear for the entire middle of the film yeah, and, and uh, they they don't. I mean, they come into the film twenty five minutes in, then they disappear for over half yep. an hour. Like they they are absolutely the smallest component of this film. But yeah. there's a part of you that if you're there for the f kind of funny, quirky, pulpy, let's watch Nazi Nazis Nazis get their brains bashed in in this sort of yep. over the top exploitation movie. There's a part of you where your heart just kind of your instincts go like, oh, I want to follow them. You're not yep. as clued in or like the Shoshana stuff where it feels. Again, some of the some of the Shoshana pieces feel like okay, this is this could have been its own melodrama, this deep, stark drama yeah. about this Jewish woman hiding in France, and then not France becomes occupied by the Nazis, and then she's got this like Nazi soldier who's an aspiring actor who's obsessed with her, and she runs a movie yeah. house, and she's in an interracial relationship, which we don't even really know until it's hinted at kind of towards the end. Um, and so like all this was like, that could have been its own thing. Like, how do you, how do you exist in this occupied world, this occupied space? That's part yeah. of the movie and the tension there. But then, and there's also like the, these comic book elements, like I said, like these yeah. pre-code comic yeah. book elements. And the key to me, cause I, it did feel very unwieldy. The key to me is Christoph Waltz. When you realize that his, his performance oscillates back and forth throughout the film yeah. between being a harrowing, terrifying, portrayal of a nazi hunter to being yeah. a fucking goof goofball if you follow him i don't want to say he's the main character but i think yeah. his performance is the modulating point that you need to follow for the those individual segments to come together i'm yeah, not right. i don't completely disagree with you though because i do think sometimes we get one tense scene 
after well, another. Yeah. Yeah. And that it just it sometimes feels like an exercise in how many scenes of tension can he stack on top of each other well, with different I characters. Think, I think this was my issue, at least on a first watch, is I think that this movie, more than any of his others, is the one that has the most tonal shifts. Like it jumps around yeah. tone way more than any of his other films. And I think that this movie works at its best when it is bringing the tension, you know, like that first mm. scene where they're under the floorboards and Christoph is drilling that guy or, or even, you know, the scene where he first meets Melanie Laurent and he's talking about the cream on yep. the strudel and kind of questioning her. And, you know, you can and you're trying to figure out, does he know who tension. she really is? Yeah. 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 Yep. You know, those scenes are when this movie is at its best to the point where when it gets to the fun Nazis having their heads bashed in stuff, I'm almost not, I'm not ready to be in that space of fun yet. The film hasn't brought mm. me there in a natural way. And so by the end of that scene, I'm like, yeah, let's have some fun. Let's get to some ultraviolence. And then you got back to a really tense scene and that's where I want to sit. And so that was my issue with the film, at least on a first watch, is I think those, those tonal jumps don't quite work as well as I'd want them to. And so that's why I think individually all the components work. But for me, I don't think the whole film marries together as much as I would like it to. I think that this movie, I think the writing doesn't have as strong as a through line of some of his later films and some of his earlier films. But again, I think what clicked in my mind was that performance from Lanza and then realizing from Walter's Lanza and then realizing, oh, he's stacking these tense scenes on top of each other because he is trying to emulate life in an occupied territory. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but the thing is, I, st- I'm, I'm with you. I do find myself at times fading in depending on the scene, because I'm not able to make that necessary, that whiplash sometimes that it feels like as quickly as the movie does. Right. Like I'm, yeah, there's something about like, this is the one where sometimes it feels a little, I'm trying to find the right word. I'm not, like you said, I'm not ready for it to go to comic book land at yeah. some time. So yeah. then when it does, sometimes it feels dismissive or ah, what's the word? I'm, it feels almost as if it's trivi- trivializing the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you yep. how you feel. Uh, obviously this is your show. You, you meant to drive the conversation. Well, let me, let me ask you how you feel about the, the story and the way it goes then, because I do think revisionist history is a tricky territory, especially when you're playing with something as big as like you just alluded to the Holocaust. How do you feel about Tarantino kind of making this, his sandbox to play in and obviously altering the end of history there by the end of the film? Like how do you, I, I personally am okay with it. But it's one of those things where I watch it and I'm like, I don't know if I should be okay with this. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is I think it's okay to be sitting in that place where it's like, I don't know that I should be okay with it. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not turned off by the fact that because Django does this even more so. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm I'm not so sure that he gives a shit. I I think in times I think he's trying to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, I think just the fact that the, 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 this is where he begins to really, and people will say, well, the dialogue and Silver Surfer and Hunt for October and all this other sort of shit. But 
this is where it's not just like his film knowledge or pop culture references. He's slipping in esoteric film knowledge for major plot points. The nitrate yeah. in the film, the 35 millimeter. Yeah. And how it's explosive. And that becomes a plot point of how they're going to burn the Nazis. And then, you know, maybe it's a too literal interpretation to say it's Tarantino believing that art can bring down fascism. Right. Um, yeah. Because it's a movie that kills Hitler. It's a movie. It's 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 movies. It's film that literally kills Nazis and yeah. fascist governments. The typically one of the first things they go over, whether it was the Khmer Rouge or Mussolini or Hitler or whoever, Lenin, is they go after film. Right. They go after yeah. film and music and they go after the intelligentsia and the artists. Um, so like that's probably too literal of interpretation. But I think what he's actually doing is. Again, I think the movie makes this transition and you have to watch Waltz for it. And I didn't catch yeah. this the first time. I think that what he's actually doing is at some point the movie shifts. and It's, it's still a broad, lack of a better term, pulpy tone, even at the beginning. Yeah. But it gets even more and more and more, for lack of a better term, comic booky as the film yeah. goes on. I don't think Tarantino is interrogating Nazism. I think Tarantino is interrogating Nazis in film history. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because since before America entered the Second World War, Nazis have been bad guys in movies. Yeah. How many fucking Nazis? Like, Steven Spielberg, a Jewish director, directs a movie where his hero goes, Nazis, I hate these guys, right? Like, that's, that's the guy who made Schindler's List and a bunch of other World War II movies and has to reconcile with the Holocaust and saving private Ryan on this sort of stuff. Yeah. But some of his first attempts at doing a movie with Nazism in it, what is he doing? He's doing a pulp adventure serial where the, yeah. the, the, the Nazis became comic book characters Yeah, yeah. in no, American pop culture, fair. which is the birthplace yeah. of obviously a lot of film culture. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't, I think Tarantino is a guy. I don't think Tarantino his movies are not about the world as it exists. Yeah. His movies are about are about movies. Yeah. Are about <laughs> movies because that yeah. is his world. He yeah. does not have you know a rea- reality lens and then a movie lens. Movies are his one lens. Yeah, and that makes so complete sense. This is the Nazis in this movie are not Nazis. They're Nazis in Italian exploitation movies. Yeah, exploitation World War Two movies. They're Nazis in. You know, in, in the same way that the Manson family is not the Manson family. It's the yeah. Manson family as if the, if the Manson family were in a exploitation revenge picture from yeah. the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So same thing with the rural South. That's not the rural South. That's not Plantation America. That is a movie version of Plantation America. So, yeah. Um, I think one, he's he doesn't give a shit whether or not you're uncomfortable because I don't think he gives a shit about people. And two, <laughs> I also don't think that in his mind he's interrogating actual Nazism. I think he's using yeah. movie Nazis, Nazis yeah. in quotes, to make a commentary about yeah, nice, prob- yeah. Uh, probably fascism and film and the power of cinema and whatever. And uh, and Makes I think he just sense. he just grew up as a lot of Gen Xers did, watching stuff where Nazis were bad guys, and we love to see yeah. them get the shit kicked out of them. Yeah, that's what, and that's what he did. You you brought up earlier about the film, you know, being used as the weapon, catching fire and stuff. The nitrate film. There yeah. is one element of the film that I genuinely dislike. Like okay. everything else, I think is really good. 
Samuel L. Jackson's narration, which dips in for two paragraphs randomly throughout this two and a half hour film. I hate yep. it. Lose it. I hate it so much. It that like it's I just hate it. <laughs> you feel like it's unneeded? I do. And I'm not the guy who's like, fuck voiceover. I think voiceover and narration can be extremely effective. Like there mm. are some films that do have like a, you know, this kind of mythical omniscient narrator and i think that's great i don't know if it's just the infrequency of it here it makes it feel especially the times it comes in it is literally just to provide exposition and i'm sure that tarantino did that on purpose for whatever reason he has but i i just i dislike it immensely i think if it had had been more frequent i probably would have been okay with it even if it was only I don't know, five times total throughout the whole film. But don't you think that's also tipping his cap to the audience because he brings a narration to explain the film stock and how, how it could possibly blow up. And then he yes. cuts, he intercuts split screen between his movie and another movie, which references the guy trying to bring the film onto the trolley and it, how it was even in movies. You could, you know, there was a known thing back in whatever, the 30s yeah. or 40s. And don't you think that's him tipping his cap that this is not, real German Nazi-occupied France. This is movie Nazis in movie France. And it's such a movie, I'm going to have the narrator halfway through the film break in and explain this to you and then show you a clip from a different movie to remind you this is just a movie. This isn't the real Holocaust. Don't you think that's kind of the point? (laughs) I mean, possibly, but it still just doesn't work for me. Like, I just... Like, like I said, I think if it had been more frequent, because so that's the second time the narrative breaks in. He breaks in earlier just to introduce us to one of the bastards, which even that I find very strange. None of the others get an introduction. It, it's just exposition to give us this one guy's backstory. And I don't even remember. Just, is it the bear Jew? I don't even remember which one is. It. Is it Eli uh, Roth <laughs> or is it? No, the, uh... it's not the bear Jew. It's um, I, I forget which one it is as well. It's it's the one who. No, it's gone. It's gone from my mind. <laughs> but either way, it's just it's so yeah. it just it feels unnecessary. Yeah, that's how much I, it affected I, honestly, me. I don't even remember where the narration kicked in. Yeah, I honestly might have preferred it if it was only the once. If Sam Jackson did only come in to talk about the nitrate film, and as you say, that's kind of the point of it. But yeah. I think it just, with the two times, it just doesn't work for me at all. I hear it. I hear it. This is a movie that is chaptered, as some of his later works are, is chaptered like yep. a book. And what I would say is I hear you on the unwieldiness, and I would have been much more in agreement even like a year ago. But what I realized is, especially now that like I consumed the trilogy, so to speak, these unofficial trilogy, these spiritual films, these revisionist history films kind of in a row, um, I feel as if, okay, and especially because he did a novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I feel like I get what he's doing more here, which is this is like a book. Yeah. And like a book, there are some chapters that are just more compelling than others. Yeah. There are some chapters, if you're reading a novel that are just like, it's like, well, okay, that was a short chapter. It was like a fine bit of prose, but don't know that the book needed it. Like it didn't really add very much, but it's there. I feel like this movie is kind of that. Um, and where we take an aside, like here's the main story. Now we're going to go on this little side over here. And I feel like he's trying to he's trying to capture not just obviously Italian World War II exploitation films. He's also trying to capture movie novelizations. Yeah. Which were the rage and he was obsessed with them as a kid. And that's a, a bit of movie culture that most of us didn't grow up with or did not grow up with as intensely 
as a uh, elderly Gen Xer, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Tarantino. So I think some of that can kind of bypass us. That that even that decision is a sort of an homage to a piece of pop culture that we didn't necessarily have or whatever. So yeah. um, because World War II was obviously still a big, at least in the United States, it was a big. I mean, we had a freaking concentration camp or POW camp comedy called H- Hogan's Heroes based on yeah, World War II. Yeah. Like, it was a big selling point for a lot of TV shows, movies, books. You know, uh, we, you know, they commercialized the shit out of World War II. So, <laughs> uh, for a lot of B movie, B grade stuff. So, uh, yeah. for me, here's the controversy I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. Uh, yeah. It is a good movie. You can't say it's not a well-directed movie. I would say oh, Robert yeah. Robert Richardson shot this film. It may be his first or second film that he shot with Tarantino. Um, yeah. But I think I think this might be one of his best-looking movies. I the way that this movie looks with the reds and the light and the shadow and the yeah. usage of everything. I think the cinematography is incredible here. Uh, and on that level alone, I think it's worthy. So uh, eight out of ten. But it's my number four for the week. Hey, lockstep again, mate. I agree exactly. I've given this an 8 out of 10, and it's also my number 4. Yep. All right. Well, we set the world on fire. Let's do it again with 2012's (laughs) Django Unchained. Django! Django! It currently has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. They called my wife, and they sold him. I'll take you to rescue your wife. Let's get to Calvin Candy. That's the gentleman who owns her. His wife is my property. Watch your hands, boss. You're in trouble now, son. Touch your guns, you die. What is your name? Django. D-J-A-N-G-O. Django Unchained. DSL. This film is not yet rated. Christmas Day. This is Triumph Return of Leonardo DiCaprio. Last scene in Titanic. Triumph Return of... I'm not going to call it Triumph Return. It's not a triumphant fucking return because I hate this guy with my whole heart. It's just a return. My arch nemesis, James Remar. I see what lies beneath. This guy fucking blows. Stop casting him <laughs> in your movies. Everybody. I hate James Remar. It is a triumphant return of Jonah Hill, last seen in Wolf of Wall Street. It was released December 11th, 2012, the Zigfield, Zigfield Theater, then December 25th, 2012, across the United States. On a budget of $100 million, it made $426 million. A German bounty hunter and a freed slave take bounties and right wrongs while on a quest. A freed slave tries to rescue his wife with the help of a German bounty hunter while Tarantino has fun throwing the N-word down on the page. (sighs) Uh, Franco Nero makes an appearance, right? He's like, you know, what's your name? He's like, Django. The D is silent. He goes, I know. That's the original Django. It has nothing in common with this movie other than there was a Corbucci film, which Corbucci will come up again once upon a time in Hollywood because Pacino's got the line of Corbucci as the second best spaghetti Western director in Italy. Uh, so um, he, he made two films. He made Django and he made Hercules Unchained. He took the titles and put them together, Django Unchained. The movie, if you've read or listened to Cinema Speculation, what you will realize is the original source material that, again, he's like, well, I didn't, not really based on that, but whatever. At one point, he had a guy who was like a drifter, hustler kind of character who was coming in and out of his life, and he lived with him for a while, lived with his mom, and because he was a latchkey kid, 
after a certain point, because her, 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 his mom was working so much, this Floyd, uh, who did not like him, but kind of became like his de facto babysitter. And they liked a lot of, they liked movies. And so they would go to a lot of uh, black theaters in the black part of LA and they would go to black exploitation films, which he'd already been going to with his mom and his mom's, his stepdad and his mom's boyfriends and all this sort of stuff. So he was not new to, in fact, he kind of bonded with this Floyd character because of their shared appreciation for black exploitation films. And he was like uh, probably his early teens when this happened. Floyd wrote two scripts. And one of them was about a black cowboy who became a freed man who was like basically getting revenge and trying to find his wife. More or less is what it was about. Um, he, he, Tarantino read the script once, you know, and liked it, thought it was maybe a little dry in some places, but more or less liked it. And um, years and years and years and years went by. He eventually lost touch with Floyd. You know, Floyd just disappeared as vagrants tend to do out of your life. And he, and he just never saw him again. Doesn't know whether he's dead or alive. He's probably dead at this point. And part, it's, it's like the last chapter, basically, of his book. And Tarantino just basically was like, Django and Chain is not, because there was a name for the script, is not whatever that script is. But Django and Chain probably wouldn't exist without Floyd's script. And I, and I probably should have thanked Floyd for it publicly when I made Django. And so the last chapter ends up kind of becoming like his mea culpa for kind of stealing this guy's idea. <laughs> um, it is the second of his revisionist revengers. Obviously, this is a revenge of slaves against white slavers uh, and the institution of slavery, really. Um, it is a spaghetti western. It's the most overt spaghetti western he's ever made. It's a spaghetti western with darkly comedic sensibilities where you get to see pieces of shit get mowed down. And he, for, yeah. you know, like, yeah. for a guy who like, killed Hitler, he, he seems to take even more relish in watching these fucking clan 100%. racist pieces of shit get fucking turned to yeah. jello. Yes. Given how grim you could say the subject matter of this film is, this is a fun movie. Yes! Which, I could, which again, I could see people being turned off by because it's like, you're talking about it's you're making a white guy making a movie about slavery with a lot of usage of the n-word which is yeah. also par for the course for tarantino and it's a lot of fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh 100 yeah i tell i tell a lie before sorry when i said that i uh hadn't seen pretty much all of his other films except for those first three i had also seen once upon a time in hollywood that was that was the other one i had seen so the two new watches for this binge for me were inglorious bastards and django on chain um, this, honestly, I think this is his best made film since Jackie Brown. Wow. I, I, I loved this movie. This was, this was a great watch. I think the acting in this film is masterful across the board. For me, Christoph Waltz gives a better performance in this than in Bastards. And I think, I think Bastards is the showier performance. I think Christoph Waltz, Christoph Waltz's role in this film is much less showy. But I think the way mm. that he plays the character is fucking genius. I think that this is a really, really well-made film. Oh, it's film. an exceptionally well-made film. And here's the thing with, like, Tarantino, right? And this is the dangerous water that we're into because we're two more white guys. Tarantino has always had controversy for the fact that he is a white guy, is a white writer, white director, and even as a white actor <laughs> in Pulp Fiction, 
loves to throw around the n-word yeah he does and i do i do think that's a problem like i i really do and even with this script i the word does not need to be used as many times as it's there like he can claim that it's you know history or whatever but you could make the same movie without the word being used at all and i don't think it changes the movie it or makes it a lesser film it is historically accurate that this would be the terminology that would be used the frequency and there are moments of dialogue where you're like that does that word doesn't no word let alone the n-word needs to be there like you could have conveyed that 10 different ways with it with just literally cutting that word out and it would still make perfect sense so this is the one where I go, okay, yeah. like it's almost in a way him sort of thumbing his nose at his critics. And I think it gives his critics ammunition yeah. for saying, oh, well, this is just gives a politically correct cover for his worst pensions. In a weird way, it feels weird talking about things so serious about a movie that is obviously so not serious, but it's hard when the subject matter is yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, is what it is to not kind of yes. go in there. What do you think as a non-American white film guy? Yes, and be, being non-American, I think, brings even a deeper level of separation mm. for me. Like, not only am I not African-American, I'm not even American. So the, that entire side of history just is so far removed for me. It's one of those really interesting things, you know, like... We've all heard the yeah. saying, write what you know, and that has been a big thing for a long time. And I'm actually not in favor of that at all. I mean, apart from anything else, if it had always been write what you know, then for years and years and years, you would only have stories about white men because they were the only ones kind of really popularly writing. Right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, somebody like a male writer writing a story from a female perspective, like if as long as they're doing it, you know, with the best authenticity they can, I don't think that's a problem for me. I think, I think my my only issue here comes with, like you said, the frequency of the word, apart from anything else, just from a writing perspective, it loses impact. And if you wanted that word to be, you know, like, I think that, like one really well-placed use of that word by, for example, Leo late in the film would actually, I think, shock audiences more and be like, oh, holy shit, this guy is vicious. Instead of when almost every second word for so much of the film is is that, it it really does kind of lose its impact after a while. And you don't feel, I don't think you feel what you're supposed to. Like when you hear that word, you are supposed to think, wow, that is awful. But when you hear it so much out of the frequency of this film, it just, it loses that, I think. Tarantino is known to respond to his critics at times, you know, and he, in his mind, he has full reasonings. Some would say justifications. Yeah. I think when you make a movie about slavery and you make the, potentially the white savior character, Dr. King. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe rename my character. Right, right? Oh, yeah. I, yes, I did. I did not even pick right. that up until you said it just now. Wow. Yes, that's something I didn't even right. pick up on. But I mean, that's it so has clearly be, intentional. Right? If it's not intentional, it's fine. Yeah. So the the question you, then you get yes. to is with the the frequency of the racial slur and slurs plural in this movie, is it intentional? And therefore, what is the reason behind the intention? 
Or is it thoughtless? And you, you broke the Bring record in the movie. <laughs> you know, I know Spike Lee didn't agree with Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. A lot of other people mm-hmm. don't agree with that. But you, you, what's your stance on that? Well, the, well, again, in the case of Django and Chain, I think it's absolutely silly because it's yeah. that was definitely the way. If somebody's going to say you use that, you use the word more than it was used in the antebellum South, I'm yeah. going to say you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did not use it more, and mm-hmm. no one, I don't even think anyone can even say that with a straight face. Right. Yeah. So then, just get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as I'm concerned about Jackie Brown, 15 years has proven the uh, has proven the case. That movie's beloved. Okay, this and is I what can't I quite do. decide. Okay, is it is it so ubiquitous because it would be ubiquitous? And he's trying to make a point of like this is how common it was. Uh, or is it ubiquitous just because he likes to use that word or is or is he just thoughtless? He just doesn't care. Why is it here? We don't have it. Yeah. Again, I don't think it's bad that a movie not completely aligned with my values, my worldview, my politics, my um, I don't I, I it's fine that I walk out of a movie and go, I didn't like that part of it. It's fine. Uh, my world yeah. has not ended. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I recognize, though, I also say that as a as a, somebody coming from like a, a position of privilege, right? Like I'm not a, a African-American yeah. person or black person anywhere in the world sitting down to watch Tarantino. Hey, I like Tarantino's movies. And then watching this movie that maybe is like revisionist history where, you know, a black cowboy, which black cowboys, that's not revisionist yeah. history. That's a real thing. But a black cowboy spaghetti Western, don't think we've really seen that, especially mainstream like this, especially not in the yeah. modern era where they're going to kill yeah. a bunch of fucking slavers and like there could be a catharsis there. Or that could be a, 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 like a fuck yeah moment. And then you, you have to endure yeah. this usage. And obviously every viewer is going to be different. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, yeah. I, I guess the big picture is I don't even know how to fucking tackle that part of the, the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. Every view is going to be different. My wife didn't want to watch this movie. Like she, she didn't watch it with me because just that subject matter was too harsh for her. Like she, she just didn't think that she could enjoy a movie about what it's about. And I totally get that opinion. So I watched this one alone and I, I was honestly shocked by how much I loved this movie. Firstly, obviously shocked by how much fun it was because that part of it does feel a bit dirty it it does it it feels a bit wrong that you are having so much fun with this film about like honestly this way way worse than inglorious bastards for me this movie felt kind of wrong in a lot of ways is that part of his intention he wants you to feel dirty like hey i know you're enjoying this but you probably shouldn't well exactly what is he like yeah maybe it's good enough that he forces us to ask the question right but we don't need any more Tarantino movies with the N word. Period. Yes, we're done. No, we're done. Yes. And I do think that this is easily his his best filmmaking in the last kind of ten years. I think that it's I, I I couldn't believe by how well made this film was. I think that this is his tightest structure and narrative mm. in a long time. I think that the screenplay was incredibly tight i you know yes this is another long film but i didn't feel the runtime of this film well so okay that's where i'll disagree with you because i i think this is a movie where it's got a lot of elements that i love it's got men on a mission i love men on a mission movies it's a a revenger i love revenge movies for the most part there's bad ones but a a, a b a b minus revenge movies an a plus in my category 
Uh, I love movies <laughs> yeah, with smart yeah. characters who are always just a little bit of a step ahead, and that's definitely Schultz, Dr. Schultz. Um, I love... Yeah. I love the fact that Django, as played by Jamie Foxx, who's excellent in the film, is a powder keg. And we want to see him explode. We're just not quite sure when he's going to do it. Yeah. We know Django's going to blow his top. Yeah. But we also recognize this is a black man who's a recently freed slave in a very racist yeah. America, overt, not covert, nothing covert about the racism. He is seen as not even oh, human. Oh no, yeah. He's seen as subspecies, subhuman. He de- he doesn't have the right to sneeze in public, let alone give somebody a dirty look or whatever, right? And he he is walking a razor's wire this entire movie. And so you do feel that, but then there's that yeah. place where you were just like, you want this guy to go off. You want to see him go fucking yeah, berserk yeah. because he deserves to go berserk in every <laughs> one of these pieces of shit in this movie especially leonardo dicaprio and all of his fucking hillbilly goons yeah. deserve to fucking die and the movie's effective at getting you into that yeah. place and making you wait for it and wait for it and wait for it and wait for it and i think to D- dicaprio's credit i think he plays the perfect heel in this movie i think candy is a such a yes. he's a fucking idiot but he's also so hateable and dicaprio is just i think is excellent yeah. in this film to me, though, once we actually get to the plantation, Candyland, the f- pacing again kind of falters for me. And I know it's meant to build yeah, tension, right. but I think we get, it goes on so long, all attention subsides to me. And I, at that point, I'm just waiting for the revenge. I'm just waiting for the revenge to kick in. And, and then when it does, that plantation, yeah. the first one, the f- plantation shootout kicks in. Where, and, it, and, and, this is where Tarantino is really smart. It's not Django who explodes. It's Schultz. Yeah. He's the guy who's been in perfect yeah. control the entire yeah. time. You really want me to shake your hand? I insist. If you insist. okay that's intentional where it's intentional is schultz has the privilege of fucking losing it yeah yeah because it when it all comes down to it's just over the indignity of shaking that guy's hand yeah we've seen Django endure how many worse indignities yeah yeah and he's had to not lose his shit and there's this white guy he's just like i don't want i just don't have to shake the hand of this piece of shit (laughs) yeah yeah, and then he's like, "Fuck! I just kill, <laughs> just kill him." And he's, he's like, "I just couldn't resist. I'm sorry. I just couldn't resist." And that is as close to a political commentary as I think you're going to get from Tarantino. He's going, "This guy just couldn't handle lowering himself to fucking shake this guy's hand." Well, meanwhile, Hildy is got a back full of scars. Yeah, yeah, has been a, a sexually accosted and pimped out and raped and stolen from her husband and. And look at the things Django's endured. Look at the things Django's endured as a free man, just in the time that we've known him. And they can't do anything. They have to just put a smile on your face and serve you fucking peach cobbler. 
But this German guy, he could he couldn't handle one indignity. I think that's as close to it as we get. Yeah. And the, but and the thing is, it's it's badass, but it's also stupid because it it puts Django in danger. I agree, and that that's why I think that Waltz's performance in this film is so fucking exceptional because it's it's subtle. There's so many subtleties to his performance in this role, and. I like I said. I just think I, I understand that feeling that the plantation sequence goes on too long yep. before we get to that point. But I just think that narratively, this is definitely Tarantino's tightest yep. um, writing in a long time. I think that this is. It's very clear to me that there's a there's a structure for this film. This more than any of his other films, I think, works on the kind of classic five act structure. Um, which most of his films don't. They throw structure yeah. and everything right out the window, and a lot of the times it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But in this film, I think it's it's it definitely his best writing. The plantation shootout. <laughs> when these hicks keep getting shooting each other in the crossfire, and blood is just exploding, yeah. and it's covering the room, and a gloop and mist. It's not even. It's not yeah. even that blood is spurting. It's blood is glooping. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. fucking this, yeah. their blood is like, they have like jello squibs instead of normal squibs. And there's just, just like blobs of blood and mist and everything everywhere. It's, it's so violent and so cartoonish. It's so satisfying, but yes, also kind of beautiful. It may be actually yeah. be one of my favorite shootouts in any movie. I, I think, and, it, and the thing is it, it, he cuts it short. I'm just like I. I kind of wanted that to go on, just just like a just just like sixty more seconds. I just want some when the, the like the yeah. fucking hillbilly in the doorway who's just like in the foyer and he just keeps getting shot in the crossfire. You're shooting me! You're shooting me! And it's just it's like almost Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> yeah, His knees yeah. are getting blown apart. I fucking love it. I yes. Oh um, yes. Despite all of its flaws, yeah. despite all of its uncomfortability, despite all of that. It's still an excellently made movie. So for me, it is an 8.25 out of 10. It's middle of the pack, though. It's number three. Wow. So, yep, here we go again. I'm number number three for me as well, 8.5. If I'm doing the math correctly, then, does that mean we, we disagree very strongly on we the We must. We're talking about 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> which currently has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I want to tell you a story. It's official, old buddy. It has been. What are you talking about, man? You're Rick Dalton. Don't you forget it. Here I come. Smooth leave. You're goddamn right. On July 26th, in a town of make-believe, things are about to get real. Charlie's going to dig you. Damn it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is the Triumph Return of Margot Robbie, last seen in her own episode, Find in the Archives. Triumph Return of Al Pacino, last seen in the Adam Sandler movie <laughs> with Don Cacino. That was a sponsored episode. <laughs> I think the last main continuity episode we covered him in would have been Dick Tracy. It's Triumph Return of Dakota Fanning, last seen in, this is way, going way back, Twilight, Breaking Dawn, Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> this film was released May 21st, 2019 at the Cannes Film Festival. Cannes! July 26, 2019 in the United States. August 24th, 2019 in the United Kingdom. 
On a budget between 90 and 96 million, it made $377.4 million. An aging TV cowboy and his stuntman buddy hang out in LA during the summer of 69. Tarantino falls well down the hole of revisionist history in grand fashion as he rescues Sharon Tate from the clutches of the Mansons. The 1960s is the ugliest decade in modern history. I have zero nostalgia for this era. (laughs) I have zero nostalgia for its television, its movies, and I have zero nostalgia for Sharon Tate before or after this movie. This is such an idiosyncratic sort of story. It is a hyper-specific moment in time in the career of a fake TV actor transitioning to spaghetti westerns during the emergence of the Manson family in L.A. I should not give a flying fuck. It It is so specific to a moment in L.A., as one could get without being about a single yeah. hour on a specific Tuesday. I, it's like ready player one for West Coast Gen X. 100% true. This this is him really making a movie for himself. Like, I don't think he <laughs> gives a shit about the audience at all with this movie, which is, which is bold and fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, for me, this movie doesn't work. How lucky is he, though, that he grew up in L.A.? Because no matter how much money he made at the box office, nobody is giving him $100 million to recreate streets and storefronts in his, if he was from Davenport, Iowa. Yeah. Like, he, he got them to be able to recreate either literally or digitally, practically or digitally, major yeah. thoroughfares of 1969's Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The production design of this film is fucking stunning. He used the vanity of Los Angeles and the filmmaking industry to make himself a movie that's mostly actually yes. about television. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting is Waltz is Londa, then Schultz. So he's a Nazi, then he's a good guy. DiCaprio is Candy, and then he's Rick Dalton. I want to see the 14th Fist of McCluskey. I want to see that movie. I think this may be Leonardo DiCaprio's best work. I think this is maybe his best performance. I wow. fucking love... I love the fact that he has this absolute corn poke stutter that never gets addressed. Nobody ever points out the fact that he stutters. And when he's yeah. acting, he doesn't stutter. I mean, I, I, I think Leo's fantastic in this film, but I, I personally think his performance in Django is, is better. I think that that is some of his best work. But he's, I mean, the entire cast is on top of their game here. And this is the thing for me, like, there's nothing about this film that's bad. It's just yeah. that it doesn't work for me. I just think again, it's too unwieldy. I think, I think, story wise, is is thin. Um, he basically fills out three hours of film for an end sequence that feels almost unrelated <laughs> to everything prior to it. I, I think I think there's you know there are sequences here that really work. You know, like when he when he visits the Manson farm, yeah. I think there's some great tension and stuff built there. But it's it's a it's irrelevant to the movie. It's like you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and look, no, maybe that's just me. I don't think that you're wrong. But... I don't think that you're wrong. I think the last 30 minutes is the best work of Tarantino's career. I think the last 30 minutes of this movie is the best 30 minutes he's ever put on screen. I think it's everything you've ever seen him do before. And I'm going to get to why. I'm building towards why. Because this, this movie is probably, now that Jackie Brown has is, is been reappraised, this may be his most divisive one now i i agree i i know that i'm not alone in this opinion that i have but i know that there's a lot of people on the other side of the fence like you who think it's the best thing he's ever done that he's kind of been building that's how i interpret it yeah. and i i think that every time i see margot robbie in general i think that she's the most beautiful woman 
in the world. I think she's the most, and I, it's, I always forget. I forget about Margot Robbie until she's on screen. And then I go, Oh yeah, this is Grace Kelly. This is the most beautiful woman who's ever lived. And each time in each role, maybe with the exception of Amsterdam, but in each role I go, eh, no, she had dark hair, which I prefer. So, yes. <laughs> uh, in each role I go, this is the most beautiful she's ever been on the screen. But I think yeah, it again I, here, yeah. because I think that Tarantino recognizes, this is my whole reason for even bringing it up. I think Tarantino recognizes, and we talked about this when we did the Taren, uh, the Margot Robbie episode where she's somebody who owns that fact. She's, she wields that as, as part of a tool yeah. in her toolbox as an actress, as she knows that she is the most beautiful person in any given room. Um, I think what Tarantino knows about her, despite the fact that she has nice feet, uh, in his mind at least, <laughs> is the fact that the camera can't help but absorb her. Oh, uh, yeah, I agree. The 100%. camera. Loves I think her. that this movie wouldn't work as well as it does for me. For anybody, I don't think this movie would work as well as it does without this exact cast because it's yep. not just her. Leo yep. and Pitt are the same. Tarantino knows how to film these guys. Well, okay, like movie stars. Even when so here's my thing. Talking. I think he's like I don't think he gives a shit. I think he does give a shit because if he didn't give a shit, he'd get more of his like uh, B movie actors and people who haven't worked in twenty years to star in this. Here's what I think he knows. I think Tarantino is smart enough to know that you don't give a shit about 1950s westerns and what those actors were doing. T American TV western actors were doing in the late 60s. I think he knows you don't give a shit. I think he knows you don't give a shit about stuntman. I think he knows that you don't give a shit about Sharon Tate. Because, yeah, Sharon Tate was most yeah. known as a, the woman who the Manson family killed by most people. Yeah. And instead, yeah. he gives you the three most charismatic people that the camera absolutely loves and goes that that's your rick dalton that is your uh uh stunt man i forget what his name is that is your yeah. sharon tate because if it's not margot robbie we because like this is horrible to say but the vast majority sharon tate did not have enough of a career or a significant enough of a career before she was murdered she would have been known as roman polanski's gir girlfriend and then he he's known as a sex offender. Yeah. Like most people our age, right? Who's been living in yeah, country, yeah. being given Oscars even after being a child rapist, right? And having to live in Europe where he can't yeah. be extradited yeah. and he can never step foot on American soil again. That's what Roman Polanski's known for. Which yeah. saving grace is they just pretty much cut him the fuck out of this movie. Um, but Sharon Tate yeah. would have been known as probably somebody who got divorced from Roman Polanski and started a couple of weird sixties movies that are not fondly remembered yeah except for the fact that she was killed by the manson family yeah. with an unborn child he knows that he knows that I mean, he knows that he knows that and he gives you the most magnetic female actress in alive today margot robbie has ten thousand times the career and star power than sharon sharon tate did and he knows that because he knows he's got to get yeah. you to give a shit about sharon tate and this is another thing like putting in glorious bastards on the title of his movie if he makes a movie that is ostensibly ends up revolving kind of around the, 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 the Manson family massacre and the Tate killings at Roman Polanski's house, he knows that there's a good chance you're going to go reappraise not just who Sharon Tate is, but many actresses like Sharon Tate who Hollywood doesn't give a shit about. I would have been totally happy and interested to watch a movie about stuntmen 
and you know TV actors in the '60s, and I would have been totally happy to go and watch a movie about Sharon Tate that kind of revises that. I don't need them together, I, and that's the thing to me from the start. Mm. I think narratively, this film is extremely weak. I, I don't think that there is any real kind of link there until oh hey, it happens to be this house right in the final half hour, and that to no, me is no. where the film falls apart. Because for me, the the strongest bits, uh, like the first couple, I'd be happy to watch Leo just sit around acting. Like Leo yeah. acting is fucking awesome. The best scene in this film for me is that that scene where he's acting and you know chatting with the little girl and stuff. Like so, I just kind of don't understand this kind of pushing these two stories that to me seem completely separate, pushing them together into this one film. That to me is where this film kind of oversteps its bounds of of Tarantino's skill of of writing, you know, of bringing. I think it's less about a, a tight plot narrative as much as it is about how Sharon Tate represents. They Sharon Tate and Rick Dalton represent two different. It's about Hollywood. It's once upon a time in Hollywood. And it yeah. represents two different moments in two different yeah. people's lives that anyone who's ever been affiliated with Hollywood can recognize. He's on the way down. She's on the way up. Yeah. And what it's saying yeah. is this is a woman who maybe if she had, you know, she's good in this movie and nobody really recognizes her, but she's on the poster and she's a movie away, a TV show, a role. Yeah. She's with Roman Polanski. He's the hottest director out there right now. It, she's potentially one role away from becoming the next big star. She's a what if. She's a what could have been because she was snuffed out in real life. In the fantasy of this movie, she's yeah. on the edge of potentially breaking big. Rick Dalton has already had his heyday. He is fading off in the sunset. And, and he's not even fading off in the sunset. He is in limbo. He doesn't know, like he says when they come back from Italy, is he going to be a solid Los Angeles citizen? Does he have to sell the house? Does he have to do this? Does he have to do that? So when the revisionist aspect comes and comes to an end and is complete and he comes back from doing the spaghetti westerns and he thinks, okay, we'll see how these movies do, but that's pretty much like maybe I'll pick up something in pilot season, but that, that might be it. I might have to go back to fucking Iowa. That's probably the Missouri, actually. That's the end yeah. of my career. That's probably it. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. It is when that when that revisionist history is done taking place, you have Sharon's voice on Cielo Lane, which is heaven. You have Sharon's voice coming from heaven where she lives on the mountaintop over where Rick does because she's higher in the echelon. She's rising up. He's going down. And her she literally opens the pearly gates of Hollywood to him. And he's invited back in to Hollywood. And that's what the movie yeah. is about, right? Everything else is character. Everything else is the movie is about Hollywood and Hollywood is both things. Hollywood is beautiful. Sharon Tate making crappy slapstick comedies and maybe a, the, her potential to ascend as a starlet. And it's also about this guy who's turned out to be actually a pretty good actor. Turns out Rick Dalton is actually a good actor. But he's also a self-inflated yeah. fucking jackass who has got a horrible, yeah. fragile ego yeah. and is on his way down. It's also about people being blacklisted for based on rumor and innuendo. Did he kill his wife? Was it an accident? We don't know. Yeah. It's also about fucking arrogant assholes 
like Bruce Lee, right? And whatever, this fictionalized version of him. But it's also about like cheap Mexican restaurants. But it's also about a town that would allow like this fucking cult to just be in their midst and grow up around them. And because people weren't making Westerns anymore, because like Rick, those things had faded, it started to fade away. Nobody even knew that this, this, this cancer cell of a cult was growing out on Spawn Ranch. Nobody even looked because George Spawn yeah. was forgotten about. The industry had moved on, so nobody knew that he was being exploited by a fucking weirdo cult, right? Nobody cared. Yeah. And so the, the movie is really like, it's a celebration and a critique of Hollywood itself. I hear what you're saying, yeah. but to me, I don't necessarily need that through line of a narrative because I, the narrative is the trajectory of these two people's careers in particular, really three people's careers, but more so Rick's career and therefore uh, Brad Pitt's career. I, what the fuck is his name? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh my God, like, you're a good buddy. I try. Uh, yeah. Cliff Booth. Cl- Cl- Cliff. Cliff Booth, yes. Cliff Booth. It's about yeah. Cliff. Cliff. It's also about the, the what if. And the fact that we don't focus so much on Sharon Tate, it leaves her into this in this place of she is still in our minds a what if. She's still in her minds of what could have been. It doesn't revise her career and say, she's the biggest star in the world. It shows us what her career was at the moment she was taken out. And it leaves the rest of it like, ooh, what could be? And I think the reason why I have this above all of his other works is because this is the movie. This is his most romantic film. He loves Hollywood. He loves movies. He loves he actors like Absolutely. Sharon Tate yeah. and Rick Dalton and these obscure people in history who are footnotes if for nothing else but their tragedies. And he loves them. He loves telling their stories and he's telling the story, but he also recognizes what Hollywood really is. It's kind of a sham and it's exploitative and it's dangerous and it can get you killed. He recognizes all of that. And of all the movies that he uses ultra violence to revise history or ultra violence in general, again, he restrains himself in the ultraviolence until that very end. And he, it is his most hopeful movie. It is the movie with the least cynicism. I, yeah. So I don't, can't explain this to you, Billy. Cause again, I don't give a shit about any of the stuff he gives a shit about for the most part. But <laughs> every time this movie ends from the point I saw it in theater to the point I watched it just, a, just a few nights ago, I cry. I tear up every time Rick walks into the house at the top yeah, of right. the hill. Jay, honey, is everything all right? Everything's okay now, honey. Uh, but some hippies broke into the house next door. Oh, my God. Oh, that's terrifying. Is everybody okay? I'm talking to your next-door neighbor about it right now. Rick Dalton? Yeah, that's me. Oh, well, hello, neighbor. Is everybody okay? Yes, yes, Sharon, everybody's fine. Are you okay? Yes, I am. Thank you for asking that. Rick, would you like to come up to the house for a drink and meet my other friends? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Oh, hooray! Great! I'll buzz you up! 
and they just once upon a time right. in Hollywood. It wow. literally gives me fucking goosebumps because I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I love hearing you talk. You talk about it with such passion. It makes me want to rewatch it right now. <laughs> like, because I do, I genuinely love that. And I understand everything you say. Um, but I guess for me, I would like to see Tarantino do something where he doesn't have to feel like he has to lean into the mm. ultraviolence at all. Yep. You know, I, I would have been fine with just the Hollywood romanticism. Like if this movie ended half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour earlier, I think I would have been okay with it because I don't mind. I don't mind a film about nothing. If this film was literally just about a fading star and, and his, his best friend who's a stuntman and it's just, just that mm. I would have been okay. But I, I don't, to me, it's the kind of shambling of these two things together. And the way you talk about the link with, you know, him falling and her rising, it makes sense to me theoretically on paper. But I, I didn't get any of those feelings you're talking about watching the film. And I've seen it twice now. I saw it in the cinemas and then I rewatched it this week for the binge. And both times I, it mm. just didn't connect with me. And look, maybe, maybe some of that is that I'm Australian. So, you know, this is, like you say, this is a very yeah. Hollywood centric film which just in its nature American. makes it a very American yeah. film as well. So maybe it is some of that that just doesn't quite connect with me and give me that nostalgia that I think is maybe necessary. Because there are films that, you know, you talk about having no nostalgia for the 60s at all. There are films that can give you nostalgia for a period you weren't sure. alive for. You know, like, I think we spoke about that last time, even with Stand By Me. Um you know, that's a movie that I watched that movie and I, I feel nostalgic, even though it obviously. Your father's a loony. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, my dad was a loony. <laughs> so, you know, I totally get, but yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's that I'm just that extra distance removed that, yeah, it, it just doesn't do it for me. And I recognize that there's lots of, like I said, I think the production design is out fucking standing. The yeah. cinematography is great. All the acting is top notch, but I, I just can't connect with this film on the same level. You know what I have to say to that, Billy? USA! <laughs> USA! USA! <laughs> no, I, here's the thing. I can't, if, if, if it doesn't matter how well a movie is technically made, at a certain point, movies yeah. are beyond an intellectual experience. They are almost like a, yeah, they're almost an spiritual, connection. right? Yeah. And if you're not having that spiritual yes, experience yeah. or that emotional experience as you're sitting there, yeah, then it doesn't really matter. It does. It, it doesn't like because there have been yeah. plenty of movies I've reviewed on this show in the 500 plus movies we've covered, where it, just in our main continuity, where I'm just like, I get why people like it. I just there's just missing yeah. something for me. Yeah, and yeah. Like how you missed the point of bulletproof, for example. <laughs> I mean, I recognize that, yeah, that gays are scary. Gay sex is scary. But I just didn't, you know, didn't it just, whatever. Um, my tongue is in my cheek with that. Yeah. To me, again, is Jackie Brown a perfect movie? Or is Once Upon a Time in a Perfect Movie? I come away thinking it's not a perfect yeah, movie, right. but to me, it's damn close. It's a yeah. 9.75 out of 10. It's my best of the week. I'm adding it to Whoa. the short list. Yep. 
Wow, that is extremely high. I'm gonna I'm gonna make you so sad here. I'm so sorry. For me, it's a six out of ten. Jesus Christ, a six out of ten. And it is my number five of the week. Jesus! Like I said, a sit, you know, it's it's every, okay. I used to be really, really, really overzealous with my scores. I, I never scored anything below a seven. And my ex-co-host Topher was very frequently throwing out sixes. And he was like, you got to remember, that's above average. That's still an above average film. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I, I, for me, a six for this film makes sense because I recognize everything that's really good about it. It's, it's above average. The filmmaking itself is great. But I have such little connection to it and I enjoy my time with it so little that I personally cannot go above a six. Let, let me, this I'm is a so movie. Sorry, I'm disappointed. I'm never going to come back on, am I? <laughs> what country are you, what continent are you uh, originally from? When Australia, mate. You have a broken education system in Australia. I just felt entitled to say that <laughs> because you're like, oh, 60%, good marks. A 60%. We have A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's. Yeah. <laughs> in the American education system. A 60% is a D. I don't even think it's a D plus. It is a D, which is on its way to an F. For real? Yes. No way. That's messed up. <laughs> so when I grade something, a, at, I give it a 6 out of 10. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying it's just above failing, right? Yeah, right. So like 7.5, <laughs> 7, 7.7, 7, well, 7.5 so, so so is it? average. <laughs> 8, 8.5 is good. So then what, what's a 3? What's a th- so what's a three out of ten then? It's a fail, but it's it's oh, it's almost incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's like you turned a written assignment in and you you started it, but you didn't finish. <laughs> so you just gave you just gave Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a b- above just slightly above failing grade. I stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so remind me what, what what was the F that you almost gave it? What was your score? Uh, a six. I gave it a six. Jesus Christ, which means it's the worst? For, for me, it's, it's the worst of not only of these five, but I, of the Tarantino that I've seen. It is. What's the, the one worst? he did? Yeah. Uh, uh, Drive Planet. What's it called? Planet Drive? <laughs> yeah, I, did, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> I literally just had it in my head. I, it's Planet Terror and. Uh, yes. Um, oh, some, oh, Death geez. Proof. That's going to bug me now. Um, death Proof. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you you like Death Proof more than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I haven't seen Death Proof. I'm sure that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be above that. The girl that hangs on the hood in Death Proof is a stunt coordinator who's married to Kurt Russell, or at least in a relationship with Kurt Russell, that gets pissed about her car being <laughs> fucked up because Bruce Lee gets thrown yeah. into it. Anybody who has the balls to show Bruce Lee getting the shit kicked out of him by an elderly Brad Pitt. <laughs> I love yeah. it. All right. It's time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me. Number five. Worst of the week is Reservoir Dogs to give a 7.5 out of 10. I think what we end up having here is just like the middle is pretty much the same. Yeah. Like the top and bottom are yes. inverted. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> yes, it is exactly. Yeah. It's very nuts. Yeah. Coming number four is Inglorious Bastards, which I give it eight. eight. Out of ten, I've come around to it, but I understand why. Uh, uh, I understand why people would rate it higher, but I, I just, I yeah. can't. Uh, Coming number three is Django Unchained. A great time at the movies, 
despite how deeply problematic <laughs> yeah. it is and how in about five years you're probably not going to be able to watch it yeah. anymore. Uh, 8.25. Number two is Jackie Brown, a movie that has grown on me and I think is top tier Quentin Tarantino, obviously. It's just beneath, I think, his greatest film, or at least the one I enjoy the, the most because of its hopefulness. And maybe, maybe there's something. Jackie Brown kind of ends on a sweet note, too. Yeah. Because Jackie gets away yeah. with it. And so maybe there's just something where I'm like, I like I liked Tarantino, but I want him to end on a sweet note. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Jackie Brown, 9 out of 10. And number one, adding to my short list, which means it's going to go on towards last movie standing. The movie I think is Quentin Tarantino's best film. Fuck off. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 9.75. All right. Well, dead last for me, we've got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with a barely, barely <laughs> above failing six out of 10. <laughs> uh, then uh, number four in Glorious Bastards, which is an eight, exactly the same as you. Django Unchained at number three, 8.5. Jackie Brown, number two, at a straight nine and Reservoir Dogs is my number one with 9.2. Uh, so on on the whole, what we're saying is, no pun intended from where we started the conversation, but on the whole, H-O-L-E, we are, uh, we're rating him pretty high. Uh -huh. we're, we're, we started this yeah. by saying we're not Tarantino film bros, but maybe we secretly are. 100%. I mean, four out of these five films I have at an eight or higher. And Hollywood, look, I yeah. recognize that a six seems low, but I think that, it is a film where the vibe you get from it and how you personally attach to it matters more than anything, because I do think yeah. there's very little kind yeah, of story to connect to. So the way that you connect to it emotionally really is like everything for how you feel about that film. On our next episode, we'll be ranking the top grossing films of 2001, 10 through six, which includes Hannibal, <laughs> Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park 3, The Mummy Returns, and The Grand Turkey at the Thanksgiving Day fucking parade, <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Wow, what a list. Oh my God, 2001. <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation, listeners out there. If you are angry at anybody... Don't be angry at me. I'm the host of the show. Be angry at the guest. Be Dizzle. And you can find him to send your angry comments. Where? Where can they find you? Uh, I'm on all the socials at We Watched a Thing or WeWatchedAThing.com. Last time I checked in your standings in my podcast app, you are actually just beneath. Any guess? Mm. Another movie podcast. I don't, I don't know. Who else? Quentin Tarantino. No way. That can't be true. <laughs> Yes. Wow. Yes, it's there true. You go. Oh, damn. Somebody's not looking at their numbers. No, no I, I, I'm very rarely. I'm very rarely. I mean, it's like the social media. There's too much to keep track of. Yeah. You know what? Here's the, here's the honest truth that you do this long enough, you stop giving a shit about what that is. Yeah, I've turned into Tarantino. I just do it for me. I don't give a shit if anybody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to be working yeah. for you because uh, you're right there with him in a pod podcast where he drones on and on and on while infringing upon my gimmicks. Re does he really? Does, because, does he, does he oh, now Jesus. own the last video shop in the universe? He's trying. Yeah, right. What a dick. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, now I have to adjust my scores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we're, what we're really trying to say here, as we bring this to a close, is fuck Quentin Tarantino. 